Hey folks, I'm traveling these couple of weeks. My dad's usual partner for his retiree fishing trips, my uncle, got stationed to his last Navy post in Italy. So this year it was my turn, and I get to live at least the westward travel part of my own little on-the-road fantasy. Which means I'm pre-recording three of these Monday shows back in mid-August. And which also means that I won't be at a computer to do all of the publicity work when these episodes go out. So if there was ever a time when you were thinking about putting up an episode on your Facebook or elsewhere, now is it. Also, just generally, my recording studio, such as it is, is impossible to soundproof. I drape a big blanket over my PC to try to cut that noise, but there's just a big old hatch in my roof that opens up onto the city of Guadalajara, so there are dogs and trucks and jets and all sorts of garbage that comes through. I try to stop recording when I notice that, but sometimes I don't, and sometimes it's so constant that I've just got to keep going anyway. I'm working on getting the quality as crystal as possible in post, but I can only do so much. So apologies, and I appreciate your patience on that front. Anyway, this is another subject that I've been brooding on for a long time, and given that I wrote it over the weekend of the Charlottesville rally and terror by car, one that I think is pretty appropriate for the times. As always, let me know what you think. We're talking about the United States of America and its very bad patriotism. My name is John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal, to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Patriot is one of those words, like freedom, that the United States has made entirely her own without ever deciding exactly what it means. The first time I'd ever heard patriot and patriotism being used was as a kid, in history class, as one teacher or another described the Founding Fathers and the Revolution. 
And not the second time, but the second context was after 9-11. And then again, after we invaded Iraq. Patriots were the people who stood with the president. Patriots were the people who cheered on the troops. Clearly, in my mind, patriots were all about shock and awe. The Founding Fathers were patriots, I was taught, because they disagreed so strongly with the unjust actions of their head of state that they rose up in rebellion against him. After the wars in the 2000s started, anyone who opposed what they called unjust actions on the part of their head of state were, according to people on the news every night, failing to be patriotic, while the people who supported him were not. And in case I'm just remembering that wrong, here's a little bit of audio from August 10th's Pod Save America supporting me on that point. There is an argument to be made in times of national crisis that the country should come together. Right. Sometimes that argument is good. Sometimes it's bad. Well, I mean, it was one of the reasons we ended up in Iraq was this view that we had to, it was unpatriotic to question the president of the United States after 9-11. And Democrats, many of them, rolled over in that, in that political environment. Even as a kid, I clocked the dissonance. It's no new thing to notice the conflict between support for and resistance to the government in the American perception of patriotism. It's not that new to criticize American patriotism either. Samuel Johnson said that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel back in 1775. The men who launched the Whiskey Rebellion surely thought of themselves as patriots, and surely experienced some dissonance of their own when the patriot par excellence, George Washington, arrived to crush their uprising. Both sides in the Civil War called themselves patriots, and I'm sure they both did so with all sincerity. Defining patriotism, especially over the whole history of the Republic, is, I think, impossible. But I think we can come up with a popular conception of what it means today, especially if we listen to the people who like to describe themselves as quote-unquote American patriots. That is, the Toby Keiths, the Tim McGraws, and the Tea Party conservatives of the world. Thank my lucky stars to be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Who very least I know I'm free And I won't bear that cross with honor Cause freedom don't come free I will proudly take a stand With liberties in jeopardy I will always do what's right I'm out here on the front line And the battle will rage This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage And you'll be sorry that you mess with The U.S. of A. We'll put a boot in your ass It's the American way Hey Uncle Sam Put your name at the top of his list And the Statue of Liberty Started shaking I am a patriot And you are a traitor That last one And maybe it comes across without any explanation at all Was somebody at a Trump rally Screaming at a reporter 
I made a stab a few weeks ago at explaining why it is that conservatives seem to own the official narrative of U.S. history, the one in which the United States has nearly always done good in the world, and that when it hasn't, like in Vietnam, it was trying to do good, but got mixed up somehow. And I think the modern conservative ownership of patriotism is bound up in the same process that gave them bad history. For good reason, patriotism was linked for the whole first half of the last century to support for the government, especially support for the government in war. We know now that the First World War was far from a black and white conflict between good and evil, but Americans at the time, subject to propaganda from all sides, understandably saw it that way. More justifiably during World War II, with a really evil enemy to fight, it shook out the same. The patriotic thing to do was to grow a victory garden, buy war bonds, and support the government and the armed forces in the grand struggle. Patriotism in war, especially a good war, is easy and uncomplicated. There's no need to grapple with the freedoms enumerated in the Constitution and the Declaration, and to compare them to the actual state of the poor, of blacks, of Hispanics, of sexual minorities, and to wonder on whose side quote-unquote patriotism lies. A good war is simple, and that version of patriotism, from the D-Day landings to the flag-raising on Iwo Jima, is intoxicating. So much so that even a hardened pinko like me can re-watch Band of Brothers once a year and get real choked up about it. But when the wars got less black and white, patriotism did too. So when we got into Korea and discovered a much muddier world, things got more complicated. That conflict wasn't yet the breaking point, but a kind of middle ground. As David Halberstam writes in his book about the war, The Coldest Winter, quote, Korea would not prove a great national war of unifying singular purpose, as World War II had been, nor would it, like Vietnam a generation later, divide and thus haunt the nation. It was simply a puzzling, gray, very distant conflict, a war that went on and on and on, seemingly without hope or resolution, about which most Americans, save the men who fought there and their immediate families, preferred to know as little as possible." Unquote. Still, with the overarching black and white conflict in place, the crusade against the powers of darkness embodied in the Soviet Union, popular patriotism as support for the government endured. I think it was only when we got into Vietnam that we began to break down and break down along ideological lines. Vietnam was, in a sense, when the American left woke up. But rather than couching its rhetoric in patriotic terms, the anti-war movement sometimes went as far as anti-American discourse. I don't know if that's good or that's bad in retrospect. I just want to point out that there was a lot of room in the American tradition for anti-war patriots, given how many vets joined the movement and how adamant Washington and Jefferson and a few other of the founding fathers had been about not getting involved in just the kind of war that Vietnam turned out to be. But what definitely did happen was that the mantle and the appellation of patriotism and patriot passed to Nixon's silent majority and the pro-war conservative right, and that there they have stayed since the late 1960s. And so it is, I think, that modern conservatives are most the only people in the country who would proudly describe themselves as patriots in public, and are likewise the only people in the country, and maybe in the world, who would defend the Vietnam War on its original merits. And I think those are related things. Decades back in late 1972, South Vietnam and the United States were winning the Vietnam War decisively by every conceivable measure. Victory was apparent when President Nixon ordered the U.S. Air Force to bomb industrial and military targets 
in Hanoi, North Vietnam's capital city, and in Haiphong, its major port city. And we would stop the bombing if the North Vietnamese would attend the Paris peace talks that they had left earlier. The North Vietnamese did go back to the Paris peace talks, and we did stop the bombing, as promised. On January the 23rd of 1973, President Nixon gave a speech to the nation on primetime television, announcing that the Paris Peace Accords had been initialed by the United States, South Vietnam, North Vietnam, the Viet Cong, and the accords would be signed on the 27th. What the United States and South Vietnam received in those accords was victory. At the White House. Yeah, so there was a guy named Dennis Prager who runs a conservative YouTube history channel and also a radio show called Prager U. Uh, I'll get to it in the Vietnam series, but the U.S. wasn't winning the war in 1972, wasn't winning it in 1970, it wasn't winning it in 1962. And if you actually go and read what the North Vietnamese were saying and what our own intelligence agencies were saying, there was no point at which either of them said we were winning the war. And what the U.S. and the South Vietnamese received at the Paris peace talks wasn't victory, Tring. It was an excuse to be able to get the rest of our troops out, the ones that we had already been pulling out, and a way to cover our asses when two years later the North Vietnamese swept down and took the whole rest of the country. Uh, but that video's got two million hits, and it's full of like-minded people in the comments talking with Prager about how we were winning the Vietnam War and we should have stuck with it and whatever else. You're just not going to find that on the left, man. So where does that leave the rest of us? In a place that's not too new either. Unamuno was a Spanish philosopher of the 98 generation. That's 1898. And the generation was a group of novelists, poets, essayists, and philosophers who were active in Spain at the turn of the century. 1898 was the year that Spain lost the Spanish-American War to the United States and turned the few remaining overseas territories of the Spanish Empire over to the U.S. That's Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Unamuno had his own ideas about patriotism. But the men who had vociferously supported the concentration camps and the brutality of the empire's colonies, the men who, after 1898, supported a series of strongmen and dictators into the 1910s and 1920s in Spain, called themselves patriots. Loudly self-proclaimed patriots at that time in Spain were the ones who, in the name of reclaiming some imperial glory, launched new invasions into Morocco and North Africa. Unamuno, in that climate, which was not so different from the one in the U.S. following 9-11, or really right now, called himself a patriot, but defined the term in a different way. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that every time that somebody says they're a patriot, 99% of that's bullshit. See, I believe that the majority of the country is patriotic, but not everybody that says they are a patriot is really a patriot. Because being a patriot or being a three percenter, or being a militiaman, well, those things take action. I hear all the time, oh, this patriot group, I don't care how many people is in your patriot group. I don't care how often your militia trains on Saturdays, how many rounds you shoot down range. I don't care how many three percent organizations you're involved in, or what kind of fucking meetings you go to. To be a patriot, you actually have to be a part of something that involves action. You understand? Hey folks, it's Patriot Nurse. In today's segment, I want to discuss with you the left becoming armed. Let's destroy the constitution and build our socialist utopia. It's like, ooh, okay, lead paint dropped on the head. Mommy didn't like you, did she? How 
However, these people are becoming more and more increasingly violent with their rhetoric, right? Which is what I've been saying for a while. And it's funny because people will accuse me of different things. You know, oh, you're being you're 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 being some sort of sensationalist patriot. It's like, no, I'm putting together logic with history and current affairs. So what they figured out is they're going to try and infiltrate us from within. <clears throat> P.S. McCarthy was right on an awful lot of stuff, by the way. So just be aware of this. And for us, for God-fearing American patriots who love the Constitution, this is something that we've been anticipating for a while. The way that I live my life is not changed because the way I live my life involves often practicing with my weapons. It involves carrying my weapon with me everywhere I go, including in my own house. And when I have the ability to have a rifle at arm's length away from me, this is not changed for us. So the way that we deal with external threats of violence from these people is the same. We continue to carry. We gotta be diligent, we gotta be prepared. For now, it's Patriot Nurse signing off. I'll see y'all later. Yeah, Patriot Nurse, that last one there, 100,000 views. Right-wing YouTube is nuts, guys. Anyway, back to Unamuno. He saw patriotism as love of country, a love that was best expressed through criticism of the same. The greatest Spanish patriot would be the man who was least forgiving of his government's failures, both moral and material. That idea, even at the time, was pretty old. Socrates was put on trial by the Athenians in the aftermath of their loss to Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. The city indicted him, more or less, for criticizing the state. When accused of corrupting the Athenian youth and working to bring the city to ruin, Socrates countered that not only had he served the state under arms in past wars, but that his constant nagging criticisms of all of her public figures was in fact the most good that he could have done for his city. Socrates from Plato's Apology now, quote, I would have you know that, if you kill such a one as I am, you will injure yourselves more than you will injure me. And now, Athenians, I am not going to argue for my own sake, as you may think, but for yours, that you may not sin against the god or lightly reject his boon by condemning me. For if you kill me, you will not easily find another like me, who, if I may use such a ludicrous figure of speech, am a sort of gadfly, given to the state by the god. And the state is like a great and noble steed who is tardy in his motions owing to his very size, and requires to be stirred into life. I am that gadfly which god has given the state, and all day long and in all places am always fastening upon you, arousing and persuading and reproaching you. And as you will not easily find another like me, I would advise you to spare me. I dare say that you may feel irritated at being suddenly awakened when you were caught napping. And you may think that if you were to strike me dead, which you easily might, then you would sleep on for the remainder of your lives, unless God in his care of you gives you another gadfly." Unquote. I think if you would ask Socrates, or Plato, who gives us that speech in the Apology, they'd have called themselves patriots. And although we haven't always or almost ever called it patriotism, this is an old tradition in the United States as well. This country has always provided fertile ground for critic patriots, given that it was founded with an internal contradiction between its sweeping sets of rights and its wholesale embrace of slavery, a contradiction that Charlottesville, at least, shows that we're still at best only halfway through solving. Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speech may be our most famous example. After eulogizing the Founding Fathers in the Revolution, as any audience would expect on Independence Day in 1852, Frederick Douglass went on to say that, quote, Sidney Smith tells us that men seldom eulogize the wisdom and virtues of their fathers, but to excuse some folly or wickedness of their own. This truth is not a doubtful one. 
There are illustrations of it near and remote, ancient and modern. It was fashionable hundreds of years ago for the children of Jacob to boast, we have Abraham to our father, when they had long lost Abraham's faith and spirit. That people contended themselves under the shadow of Abraham's great name while they repudiated the deeds which made his name great. Need I remind you that a similar thing is being done all over this country today? Need I tell you that the Jews are not the only people who built the tombs of the prophets and garnished the sepulchres of the righteous? Washington could not die till he had broken the chains of his slaves. Yet his monument is built up by the price of human blood, and the traitors in the bodies and the souls of men shout, We have Washington to our father. Alas, that it should be so, yet it is, unquote. And then he goes on for a couple thousand more excoriating words. With Frederick Douglass's particular take on this kind of critical patriotism aside, since he's more nuanced, I think, than the rest of us tend to be, pure criticism seems to me to be maybe too oppositional a position, and that maybe it's better than a kind of rah-rah patriotism, but one that still leaves those of us who are that kind of patriot open to the same calcification of positions and polarization of politics that has in part resulted from the quote-unquote patriotic attitude of the modern American right. That is, if Obama is an enemy of the Republic, and you call him one while you wear a tricorner hat and reenact the Boston Tea Party, it becomes hard, even internally, to then consider anything he's done, like the Affordable Care Act, on its own merits. Likewise, if everything the government does is awful, man, then it's real tough to, like, smell the apple pie. But I have seen here in Mexico an entirely different kind of patriotism, one that bears no or very nearly no relationship to the state at all. And what's more, it's borne by people who would never in their lives call themselves patriots. And it's all the more beautiful for that. Last summer here in Guadalajara, I went to a mariachi exhibition. The residents of this city and its state, which is Jalisco, count themselves as the inventors of everything emblematic of Mexico, from mariachi to tequila. And when it's mariachi month in August, they throw down here. Let me say first that inasmuch as mariachis are, in the U.S., the people that you pay to go away from your table at a Mexican restaurant, here they are ubiquitous and beloved. When you go to any big party, an anniversary, a wedding, the Independence Day here, the last band to play is always mariachi. Every city has its own mariachi quarter, even though it might just be like a roundabout, where the bands hang out, so you can drive by in a truck and pick them up. Mariachi music occupies a place in the culture something like older country music does in the South, or hits of the 1960s do in the North in the United States. Everyone knows the words, everybody sings along, and only very rarely is anybody unhappy to hear it. And it may well be more prominent in Mexico than those styles of music are in the United States. For example, among all sorts of other more vulgar, sometimes penalized internationally, soccer chants that Mexico has, El Cielito Lindo, as a mariachi song, written originally as some other style of music, has become their unofficial football hymn, and a kind of surrogate national anthem, both much prettier and much better liked than their Soviet-style official one. Take a listen here. Un par de ojitos negros y el hito lindo de contrabando. Ay, 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 canta y no llore por 
porque cantando se alegran So this exhibition that I went to last summer, this mariachi exhibition, was a serious deal. And taking place as it did in the opera house here in the city, it was going to be the very best bands on offer. But the show began not with mariachis from Jalisco, but with Indians from Michoacan playing indigenous music, singing in their indigenous language. And the show became a tour after that of all of Mexico, hosting bands from the north, central, and south of the country, going in a grand loop from the Tierra Caliente of Michoacán down to the border with Guatemala and Chiapas, up through the Sierra Gorda of the east where I used to live, and back around until it finally finished here in Guadalajara, Jalisco, in the cradle of mariachi. And at each stop on the tour, after the out-of-state band had played, the host and hostess showed, by singing, how those disparate styles of music had all come to be incorporated into the repertoire of any fully accomplished mariachi. Meaning that even if you're a Mixteca Indian from the far south, you can ask for a song from a mariachi in the far north of Durango or Tamaulipas, and while it won't be played with your instruments, or in your language, it will be distinguishably your music. This, for example, is called Wapango, which is the folk music from the region that I was stationed in as a Peace Corps volunteer. This particular version of this song, which is called Maria Chuchena, was recorded by three what looks like 12 to 14 year olds who live in a town not more than an hour down the road from where I used to live. And when you didn't have enough money up in the region to get a real trio, this is the kind of person you'd hire, the 14 year olds from your local Casa de Cultura, where they teach 14 year olds how to play violin and guitar and bass guitar. So have a listen. And this is that same song, Maria Chuchena, in Mariachi. Listen to this. So it incorporates all these cool, indigenous, traditional musical styles into one grand fabric. Now the show that we saw last summer closed up with a band from here in Guadalajara in full regalia, the formal charro outfits that aren't at all out of place in an opera house, playing Mexico's greatest national hits. The Jarabe Tabatillo, which is the most recognized mariachi probably in the U.S., and which comes along with the Mexican hat dance, which is far more intricate and beautiful than Looney Tunes may have led you to believe. By the way, I'll have videos of all of this linked in the show notes, and this is one of those times that it would be more than worth checking those out. The second to last song in the show was Guadalajara, a song called Guadalajara, which is about Guadalajara, and that was understandably well-liked in the city of Guadalajara.
then finally, to finish the show, they played Mexico Lindo y Querida, Mexico Beautiful and Beloved, whose chorus goes, Mexico Beautiful and Beloved, if I should die far away, say that I'm asleep so that they can bring me back to you. And they brought the house down, man. In a place where you couldn't rub two people together who'd swear to loving their country, you had hundreds. Young and old, big and small, staid and punk, yelling along and bawling to this song. Now that might not seem all that different. It might even seem familiar to those of us who have been to a 4th of July concert. It sounds pretty similar to America the Beautiful and the Star Spangled Banner and the Stars and Stripes Forever. But whereas we often enough see those songs coming from military bands or played behind military images or alongside military men and women, Mariachi has nothing martial about it, has nothing to say about the state, and if it ever talks about fighting at all, it's talking about the side of the rebels. Now, I'm going to make some generalizations to which I'm pretty sure there are exemptions, but I've been in Mexico for four years now, and I've met people from all over the political spectrum, and in all of that time I haven't met one solitary Mexican who trusts, has pride, or believes in his government. Not one who has the kind of popular faith that we do in the armed forces, and not one who looks back to the constitutional past of his country with the kind of blind, self-satisfied pride that we do. And barring brief interludes under Lázaro Cárdenas, Benito Juárez, and maybe, kind of, Porfirio Díaz, Mexico and Mexican culture have lived and labored under almost unfailingly bad, corrupt, and sometimes violent government. That's not as simple a story as it seems, and there have been real heroes in Mexican history, like Emiliano Zapata, and believe it or not, Pancho Villa, it's just that they, like Zapata and Villa during the revolution, have tended not to win out against the forces of land and wealth. But what all that has left Mexicans with, despite that no Mexican I've ever met would call himself a patriot, is a much more universal and more beautiful patriotism than we have ever had in the United States. It's what mid-century French historians might have called consciousness, a set of almost unconsidered cultural values and beliefs that bind all Mexicans together the food, the music, the dance, the ties to land. People who have lived their entire lives in the city will, when asked, give you the name of their pueblo, the village where their family's from. It's like the German Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community, but without any of the pretensions of superiority that tied German cultural patriotism to nationalism and eventually fascism. Something we're not immune to here at home either. The folks with the torches in Charlottesville all thought of themselves as patriots too. The exhibition in that opera house was making a very specific argument about what it means to be Mexican. 
one much more open than any of ours, and more open even than most arguments that upper-class Mexicans have made over the last couple of centuries. That show is claiming that people of all colors, of all ethnic groups, even those who speak their own language rather than the national Spanish, are part of the integral and indivisible cultural community that, rather than the state, rather than the military, rather than nationalism, rather than martiality, is what defines Mexico. It's a wholesome way to think about things. And as patriots on the left are getting run down in the streets by patriots on the right in the United States, it's a way of thinking about what makes us American and what patriotism could and should mean that might lead us a little bit in the right direction. I'm John Coombs, you're you, and let's you and I try to make America safe for democracy again. Thank you.